I love it. I love the, the formality. It's proceedings. I feel like I'm back in court today. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you to the City Club of Mahoning Valley. Um, thank you to our wonderful venue for having this event here tonight. I have 30 minutes to talk with you before the questions begin. I can tell you that I take an hour to give a Know Your Rights presentation at the jails that I visit, and, and I'm just going over a handful of rights, so this is going to be really rapid. Um, so I do like to get up and talk, uh, so I opted for this wireless mic, which has a lot of wires. Um, <laughs> But I want to survey the room a little bit and ask, does anybody in this room, raise your hand, if you know somebody that has ever been in ICE detention? Okay. Do you know somebody who's in ICE detention now? Okay. Um, Raise your hand if... You are following what's happening in immigration law on the news, um, in, in the media, and you are confused by it. Okay, good. You're in the right place. <laughs> now, in 30 minutes, and even with the questions, I won't be able to cover the entire universe of even just removal defense, which is my specialty area within immigration law. Um, but I'm going to give you an overview to try to clarify some of the things that you're seeing in the news as it pertains to immigration detention for folks who are in what's called removal proceedings. So I'm going to say a few things. You're going to be like, what is she talking about? So I'm going to say detention a lot. I'm going to say non-citizen as opposed to immigrant. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. I'm going to talk about removal proceedings. What are those? Just right off the bat. That's when somebody is having to go before a judge to see if they have to be deported or not, okay? Removal proceedings, deportation proceedings, same thing. Okay, so that, those are the people that I work with. Um, as it was said during the introduction, um, and thank you for the nice introduction, I direct the Immigration and Human Rights Clinic at Akron Law. Um, I came here... In July will be three years, three years ago, from San Diego, California, where I created and directed a clinic just like this at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. Um, They asked me to make that clinic there while I was the executive director of the Immigration Justice Project with the American Bar Association. And we did essentially the same thing, um, except we were at a detention center on the U.S.-Mexico border in Otay Mesa that had a running number of detainees there every morning of a 1,000, okay? So it's one of the largest detention facilities in the country, and we gave Know Your Rights presentations and represented people in their removal proceedings. We do the same thing here with my clinic at Akron Law, except the Youngstown Prison or the Northeast Ohio Correctional Center. Raise your hand if you know that there is a Northeast Ohio Correctional Center. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> We're doing well. Um, many times, you may be surprised, if, if you live in the area, that makes sense. But I give a lot of these talks all over, and um, you'd be surprised that most of the people in the audience don't know that there are four ICE detention facilities in Ohio, um, and especially even the one in Youngstown. So you know about the one here. 
It houses the most non-citizens of all of the facilities um, that are operating and housing non-citizens in Ohio. Um, Ohio overall has, I believe, 560 non-citizens in detention, all right? If you look at the number of non-citizens detained nationwide, which um, track out of Syracuse did a study in June of 2018, and I, th I think they, they had the number at around 45,000, 45 to 48,000, I, I, if I remember right, um, nationwide. And Ohio had the 15th largest number of non-citizens in detention. Now, at 15th, that was about 560 people. Number one was Texas, around 12,000, okay? Um, and then California after that, um, and then down to Ohio, and then we have, you go all the way down, and some people just have like one or two people detained. Um, and I'll explain to you how that can work. Why would a facility have one or two people in it? Um, so I want to just break down the demographics because part of the part of the presentation is who's who's detained by ICE in your backyard. At Youngstown, in the facility here at NAOCC, there are about just over 300 ICE detainees there. Okay, um, approximately 200 of them are seeking asylum. All right, we're going to spend the bulk of the time talking about what happens from the point of apprehension at the border to the point in which somebody's either removed or granted relief, all right? And we'll go into that a little bit. So the other facilities outside of Northeast Ohio Correctional Center in Youngstown, there's one in Geauga County, Butler County, and Seneca County. And they have a population that hovers between 50 to 70, okay? Geauga County houses men and women. The Northeast Ohio Correctional Center is a male-only facility. Male, and all facilities that I mentioned are adult-only, okay? We're only talking about adult detainees. Um, when did this start? So around Christmas time of 2016, I came here to Ohio in July um, of 2016, and I got word that they were going to start a contract with ICE at the Northeast Ohio Correctional Center, um, which is owned and operated by CoreCivic. Raise your hand if you're familiar with CoreCivic or CCA, Corrections Corporation of America. They are a large employer here in Youngstown. Um, they have three contracts there, not just one with ICE, all right? It's not, they're not just housing non-citizens there. They have a contract with ICE, they have a contract with the state of Ohio, and they have a contract with the U.S. Marshal Service, all right? So there's something about that picture. Not all of them are the same because they're not all criminal custody. You may or may not know that immigration detention is civil detention. Immigration proceedings are federal administrative proceedings, okay? They are not in criminal detention. However, 
They are housed in the same facility. They sleep in the same cells. They wear the same outfits, and they eat the same terrible food. Okay? They just have the added bonus of having nobody there that they can communicate with on the staff because they don't, many of them don't speak English. Um, who knows? Raise your hand if you know the model for civil detention. So criminal detention, we know what it looks like, right? When you think of criminal detention, what do you think of? Jail, prison, cells, yes. What about civil detention? What's the model? What, what comes to mind? What's it based on? Criminal detention. <laughs> That's the only model that there has been. So there, it's, it's really a fiction that there is such a thing as civil detention as separate. So if I'm going to work every day at the Northeast Ohio Correctional Center as an officer, how am I going to switch off my criminal detention responsibilities when I walk into the B-Wing where it's ICE detention? Do I have a separate type of etiquette that I'm going to use? Am I going to serve different food? Are we going to all, you know, get together and have a, a, a nice meal at the table? No, it's not going to change because you enter the ICE wing. All right, so there are some, there are some inconsistencies with, and some problems inherent in having a predominantly non-criminal population housed with two completely criminal populations. All right, and, and on that point, the, um, the track organization with Syracuse University also did a study around the same time, and there have been many since then, since June of 2018. Um, there was more, one more recent. I gave a, a CLE at the African Bar Association just a couple months ago, um, and an article had just come out that showed that approximately 68% of all non-citizens in detention have a zero criminal record. And then if you look at the statistics, that snapshot of June 2018 from the same study showed that if you look at the remaining 32%, what were the, what were the convictions? The vast majority of them were for illegal entry or re-entry into the United States, okay? Um, not the serious crimes that the media leads you to believe is rampant among non-citizens. Um, it's, 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 it's just important to get a picture of the demographic of people that we're keeping detained. Raise your hand if you know how much it costs to detain one person per night in ICE custody at a private prison. $186. $186 per detainee per night. So in Ohio, Maybe we're not looking at that high of a number. We've got about 500 and, um, 560 detainees, $186 per night per person. Think about that facility that I told you about in San Diego, 1,000 per night, okay? What about for somebody's, what if somebody's detained for six months? Are you aware that our U.S. Supreme Court very recently um, decided a case and, and said that potentially indefinite detention 
is okay. Um, what about, who's paying for that? Who knows who's paying for that? Raise your hand if you're paying for that. Yeah, everybody raise your hand. <laughs> raise your hand because you're paying for it. I am too. Um, what rights do people who are in detention have? If you know. If you want to guess. There's no bad guess. What rights do people in detention who are in removal proceedings have? Not even people who are in detention, but since we're talking about people in detention, then they're in removal proceedings. What rights do you think they have? There's some people in the room that know, so don't raise your hand. <laughs> Kula. <laughs> I'm sorry? Three what? Three hots and a cop. Okay. Um, they have, do they have the right to counsel? Yeah. Uh, any caveat to that? I heard a yes. Yes, they have the right to counsel. Not really. Not, not, no, they no. don't really have it or they don't really have I a caveat? I don't think they have. Okay. So when you, when you think of right to counsel, what do you think of? Well, you don't think of an attorney, but when you say, oh, somebody has a right to counsel, usually you're talking about what kind of proceeding? A criminal proceeding. And you know, all the TV shows come up. What if somebody is in a criminal proceeding, if they can't get their own lawyer, what do they get? They get a public defender, right? And so that's really what we think about. We, we think about right to counsel. I also teach criminal procedures, so we talk about right to counsel. Um, non-citizens in removal proceedings do not have their same right. They have a right to have an attorney. That is not the same thing. They have the right to have an attorney not at the government's expense, okay? So you have the right when you're in detention to find yourself an attorney. Who can think of any issues or obstacles to finding an attorney when you are in detention? If you were apprehended in, was near the, the, the Rio Grande, okay, in, in Texas, and you were transported to the heartland, okay, and you're in a detention center, whether it's here or um, in any other, any other state, and you're in a remote facility. What are some, and you don't speak English, okay, um, what are some of your options? And, you know, we need to pick up the yellow pages and start looking for an attorney, right? They don't have, they don't have the yellow pages in Tigrinya or Spanish or, um, or Tagalog. Thank you. My daughter is offering some good suggestions here. <laughs> um, so remoteness of the facilities, language barrier, so communication, um, cost, all right? Did you see in the media recently that the Trump administration has proposed that asylum seekers pay fees to apply for asylum. Um, another thing that's affecting the detained population is um, the matter of, matter of MS that talks about not allowing bond hearings for asylum seekers who entered without inspection. So now we're going to talk a bit about some legal stuff. Um, giving you a bit of overview about the demographic and some of the hardships that are faced by people that get into detention and go through their removal proceedings. But let's talk about that, that process from A to Z. So somebody comes to the border, they swam across the Rio Grande, right? maybe they have 
um, their little cousin with them or their little brother with them, and they have a choice at that point. They can either swim across the river and come in, and they're going to be called somebody who entered without inspection, or they can go to the bridge, all right? They go to the bridge, and they present themselves to an officer there, an immigration officer, and they say, I'm afraid to go back to my home country. I'm seeking protection. That person is categorized as what's called an arriving alien. And the difference between that person and the person who swam across and didn't present themselves, who's entered without inspection, is all along, arriving aliens were never eligible for a bond hearing, okay? Both of them might go through the credible fear process. What is that? Have you heard of a credible fear interview? Okay, who gives the credible fear interviews? Who conducts them, I should say? Nice. USCIS, okay? USCIS, asylum officers employed by USCIS under DHS, okay? So there's this big umbrella. If I'm the DHS umbrella, underneath me I have USCIS, which is really a customer service sort of related entity under, under DHS. They handle all the benefits, application, um, application-related benefits. Um, you, they have a customer service number. They, they, I, sometimes I tell my class when I teach Islam and refugee law, they're like the, the Amazon.com of <laughs> the, the DHS. You can call them and check on your order. Um, then, now you have, and then you have ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They are the policing enforcement arm under DHS, okay? They also have a legal department, the Office of the Principal Legal Advisor, all right? They also have enforcement and removal operations, okay? Those are the people that are in charge of, you know, who gets detained and who does not, all right? And then they have, um, they also have Customs and Border Protection, which oversees Border Patrol, okay? Um, those things can get confusing, all right? Customs and Border Protection, those are, the, those are the folks that are, you know, on the perimeter of the country and, and Border Patrol as well. So they, the person, the two people come in, they're both going to have a credible fear interview by an asylum officer, all right? And what's the point of the credible fear interview? Are they deciding right then and there if somebody's going to get asylum? No. It's a threshold prima facie determination about whether or not this person is presenting a story or their history, the facts of why they're afraid that's going to fit within the legal framework of the U.S. domestic asylum law, all right? They're making a determination about whether this person could make a full claim before an immigration judge. They're the gatekeeper, all right? You gotta pass that interview before you can go on. I'm gonna back up just one second. What if the person who comes to the border and, and presents themselves, says, I want to come in. And then the officer says to them, well, are you afraid? And they might not ask that. Maybe there was no mention of being afraid in that conversation. What's going to happen to that person? They're going to get sent back. Bye-bye. They're going to turn right back around. They're going to get your fingerprints first, and then they're going to send you back. Um, that's called expedited removal. All right? When you come to the border and you don't have documentation to come in or you misrepresent something or you present false documents, you are put in what's called expedited removal. All right? 
and they're still in expedited removal until they pass that credible fear interview, all right? Once they pass the credible fear interview, they get to go into the immigration court and file an asylum application, just like anybody else who would, who would be able to. And it's important that you understand, this is not the only way that people can apply for asylum. Um, I, I, I published an article recently about the work that we do in the clinic, and um, you never know who's going to read this stuff, right? I got, a, I got an email from some high-up person at J.P. Morgan Chase that does international research on this type of demographic, and they said, is this the only way you can get asylum? Uh, it's not, okay? I'm going to give you one example. I'm going to come back to detention. I just want to make that clear because a lot of people, all we're hearing about is asylum. People come to the border, 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 asylum. That's not the only way you can get asylum. You could be a student that came in lawfully with a, you know, an F-1 visa. And maybe you're from Venezuela. What's happening in Venezuela right now? Turmoil. Yeah, you don't want to go back there. You might, you might be here lawfully and say, somebody might come to my office and say, I'm scared to go back. I want to apply for asylum. They can do that. That's called the affirmative process. When you're not in removal proceedings, you haven't been issued a notice to appear by, by immigration, um, you can fill out, you can go online, download an I-589, fill it out, mail it to the nearest asylum office, to USCIS. They're going to send you a receipt notice, and they're going to give you a date where you can come in in your own clothes with an interpreter, and you have your interview there. And they're going to say, yes, you get granted asylum, or they're going to refer it to an immigration judge. That's just the, another process, all right? So I just want to give you that window. But going back to the person who passed a credible fear interview, now they get to present an application. Um, they're still in proceedings, and they're still detained, okay? The arriving alien cannot get a bond hearing. But the other thing that can happen once they pass a credible fear interview is they can ask for parole, all right? They can ask for parole. Well, there are some significant differences between parole and a bond hearing, and I'm going to tell you what they are. I'm going to bookmark that real quick, and I'm going to go back to the person who swam across the river. They were able to get a bond hearing. Some people might be like, why? Um, it, it was written in the law that way, that if they're not an arriving alien, you can get a bond hearing. And, and they have been able to all this time. Um, there's no significant difference between the person who presented themselves to the officer and the person who swam across. They may have the exact same situation. It could be, they could be from the same household. Um, this person will pass their credible fear interview, potentially, also, and go into proceedings, but they're eligible to get a bond. The benefit of having a bond hearing is that it's, it's an actual judicial proceeding, okay? You can appeal a denial, all right? Um, with parole, it's much more subjective. You are basically asking ICE for mercy. You're having to prove the same things, that you're not a danger to the community and that you are not a flight risk and that you have somewhere to go and somebody's going to support you and you're going to show up to all your hearings. But ICE can just look over your stuff and say, we don't think so. 
In fact, you may have heard of a case called Damus v. Nielsen, um, in which, and this was brought by the ACLU just last year, um, and, and an injunction was, was issued because ICE has, ICE is split up across the nation into what are called areas of responsibility, okay? And Cleveland, the Cleveland area doesn't really have its own main office. It's in Detroit. Detroit oversees the Cleveland sub-office, but Detroit makes all those decisions. So the Detroit area of responsibility and four other areas of responsibility throughout the United States after the Trump administration took office started giving blanket denials to all parole requests for arriving aliens seeking asylum in, in, that were detained. Blanket denials, like zero approvals of parole, okay? And people were like, what's happening? And I noticed it. I was doing Know Your Rights presentations. I've been doing Know Your Rights presentations in Youngstown since the end of 2016. And all of a sudden, in February of 2017, nobody was getting parole. Nobody. And so we were like, this is really odd. And sure enough, they, we did a, they did a study. They submitted all these denials. And, and um, the court came back and said, this is, this is ridiculous. Uh, in, the, in the order, it's, it's kind of like, the judge was like, it's almost embarrassing to say this, but we're only, all we're asking ICE to do is what their own policy is. Honor your own policy. And the parole system did used to work. It, when I was in San Diego, you submit the requested documentation, and if they met the criteria, you got parole. Which means, it's not like what we think of, like Shawshank Redemption type parole. It's, right, it's um, you say, hey, I have a family member, or um, I have somebody here who's gonna support me that has status, and I'm gonna live there, and they're gonna provide for me and take me to my court hearings, and all will be well, okay? But, but in Detroit, they were saying, no parole. It hasn't even gotten that much better. Um, our clinic actually provided an affidavit to support this, um, this litigation and say, hey, yeah, we, we've, we've seen this. Um, so that's the difference between parole and bond. So it's a really big deal, this, um, this decision to not allow those who entered without inspection to get a bond hearing either. So that's the difference in parole and bond. Now, am I running out of time, Lynn? I'm running, how many minutes do I have? Negative one? Okay, I can, I can finish my thought, you guys. Okay, so um, I wanna talk, can I have two minutes? Okay, I wanna talk about asylum. Who gets to get asylum? All right, I, I said the asylum officers are looking for people whose claims fall within the framework. There is the definition of a refugee that comes from the 1951 UN Convention on the Status of Refugees. That is what we built our domestic asylum law on with the 1980 Refugee Act, okay? So uh, people will say, oh, well, you know, you have to, people will have to get asylum if they, if they meet the criteria because it's international law. Well, it started internationally and we adopted we, we, that's what we do. We adopt parts of international law that we agree with, and then we create our own domestic policy, right? So you know, we, we just finished a semester, and all my students in my asylum and refugee law class, they had to pick a country, and um, 
give a report on what their asylum laws are. No two countries have the same asylum laws. They may be similar, and a lot of them use the same refugee definition, which is a person outside their home country who cannot avail themselves of the protection of their own government um, because they fear persecution based on their race, religion, nationality, political, political opinion, or that they're a member of a particular social group. Okay? The first four are pretty self-explanatory. Um, but who knows what a particular social group is? I tell my students it's called, I know you do. It's, it's like the, the blooming lotus of, of the grounds for asylum. I'm going to do a quick exercise with you. It is going to take 45 seconds. Lynn, do I have the 45 seconds? Okay. All right. I do this with the detainees. You, now you really want to do it, right? Okay. All right. Everybody close your eyes and really do it. Okay. Really close your eyes. This is to really, on a very basic level, illustrate particular social group. I'm going to tell you a few things you have to have. You have to have immutable, a shared mutable characteristic. Two or more people make a group. Okay. Shared immutable characteristic. And you're persecuted but for having that, that characteristic because your persecutor wants to overcome that characteristic within you. And it's not race, religion, nationality, political opinion, okay? Um, now, we live on a beautiful tropical island in the South Pacific, all right? We're happy, we're gonna wake up, the water is aqua blue, we're gonna eat mangoes, pineapple, and coconut, things are good. We have had a wonderful leader, but all of a sudden, we have a dictator. We have a dictator. And he is so full of himself and a little bit violent, he decides on a whim that he doesn't want anybody living on his beautiful island nation who does not have green eyes like him. All right, some history is coming back here, right? Okay. Um, doesn't have green eyes. He, he, doesn't, he, just, he tells the military, I want you to find everybody in this on this island who doesn't have green eyes and I want you to kick them off this island. I don't care if they can't swim and they die. And so the military says, all right, boss. And they are government agents, right? Okay, so, so that's the other thing about asylum. The persecution has to be by a government agent. Some of you have opened your eyes, close them. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, now, they kick everybody off. People are drowning. People are trying to make it to the next piece of land. All right. Everybody who doesn't have green eyes is gone. Okay, open your eyes. What's the shared immutable characteristic? The eyes, the eye color. What's immutable mean? Unchangeable, thank you. It means, in, in an asylum law, it means you cannot change it. It's a characteristic you cannot change or it's so fundamental to your identity and conscience that you may not, you, you should not be expected to change it. So, your eye color, your skin color, what about your traditional clothing? Should you be expected to change it? My daughter says no, but why? Because it could be so fundamental to your identity and conscience that you shouldn't be expected to change it. What if you're from an indigenous group, okay? What if the way you talk, you can't change that. You're, 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 if you speak a dialect, an indigenous dialect, all right? Um, these are immutable characteristics. The action has to be by the government. Who was the government actor? The dictator. Now, if the government actor is the dictator, but who did it? Who did it? The military, right? They did. 
So that's another thing that I have to tell the detainees when we're trying to help them figure out the law. Can you imagine trying to figure this out? Um, who was a government actor? The police, the military. It doesn't have to be just like the people sitting in Washington, right? Like, or the, or, or the equivalent of that in their country. So it takes a lot of critical thinking on their part. And I always tell them, this is your one job here. You have to, you have to teach yourself this. I'm giving you just these few resources and you've got to, you've got to go from there. I, I liken their having to build their story to tell it accurately within the framework of the law to writing a book or, or a movie. I ask them to think of their favorite movie or their favorite book and say, this stuff wasn't written in a night. All the details that went in it are the reason that it became your favorite. And, and harsh things, things you wouldn't, wouldn't think about. I've had, uh, we had a client from Eritrea who's been in the most horrible underground prisons you've ever heard of. Um, I tell them, you know, if you had somebody's boot on the back of your neck and your teeth on the concrete and it was raining and you could smell the water on the ground, you talk about that. This is not far from the reality of what the people who come here are doing. I volunteered at the Dilly Family Detention Center in Texas a couple of years ago and I was doing interviews with mothers with um, keloid scars across their calves because their spouses had butchered them with machetes because they didn't have the dinner hot on the table. And they're sitting here in the detention center holding a baby and I'm asking the guard where we can find the medium-sized diaper so I can finish my client interview. All right? If that is what detention, civil detention in America is supposed to look like, I think there's a problem. Thank you. I'm not taking this off yet. All, All right. right, please line up for questions at this time. Hi, Kula. Hi, and welcome to Youngstown again. Thank you. In the daylight. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, based on your work, could you please tell us the differences that the civil detainees have for access to services at CCA and some of the other facilities that the other inmates that are there for criminal matters may have? Their, their, their lack of, of access to services? Um, yes. So I, I think one of the major impediments is, and I've noticed a difference between working at a facility in California and, and one here, I think there are more people that have more language ability employed in the facility in, um, you know, as officers in the facility in California. Um, so one of the things that I've come up against is just not being able to communicate with people, not being able to get, um, you know, other clothing or, you know, we had a client from Benin who only spoke Dendi and we literally could not find anybody else in the world to translate for this individual. And he had no money, couldn't communicate with anybody and he was out of toothpaste. I went to the, to the lobby, this is in Geauga County, and I said, can I bring him some toothpaste? Absolutely not, you may not bring him any toothpaste. Uh, you know, even at a trial size one, you just, she said, if he's indigent, he'll get it in two weeks. So he has to wait two weeks to get another little tube of toothpaste. Um, these are the types of things, making a phone call can cost over a dollar a minute. And, and when you work in the detention center and you're in ICE custody, guess how much you make in a day? A dollar, all right? So you can't even earn in one day a minute to talk to your family. Um, 
As far as other services, now, there is a law library in most detention facilities, like bigger ones, like the one in Youngstown, um, but it doesn't have the resources that somebody who's going through immigration removal proceedings needs, like a copy of the Immigration and Nationality Act or uh, an immigration proceedings outline. Um, they have a LexisNexis CD-ROM that is not updated, um, and it's in Spanish. Now, any lawyers in the room? Any lawyers in the room? Okay, so when you go through, yes, <laughs> when you go through law school, they teach you how to use LexisNexis and, and, and Westlaw. It takes you three years <laughs> to figure it out, and you're even not that good at it when, you're, when you finish. And, and so the detainees... Don't, you can't go online and Google uh, country conditions in, in Eritrea so you can be up to date and submit your own stuff. You have to depend on the outside world. You've got to get somebody to look it up for you and print it out and make three copies to give to the judge, to the government, and keep a copy for yourself. Um, so these are some of the things that, that are, um, are troubling. Also, the use of solitary confinement for disciplinary reasons is, is very troubling and very prevalent in, in detention facilities throughout the United States. Um, we're, seeing a, 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 we're seeing rampant mental illness and exacerbation of, of mental illness in detention facilities. Um, so I think, hopefully I answered some of your question, Kula. Yeah, um, access to things like education that sometimes those who have a, a criminal sentence can actually earn a degree or their absolutely yes so that makes sense like, yes you know access to medical care because they have a special need access like you said to basic needs yeah exactly so that's right they don't have the same access to degree programs and and you know somebody who's in criminal detention knows how long they're going to be there all right that's a major difference when you get a sentence and you you're in criminal custody you know how long you're going to be there you can count the days backwards to when you know you're going to be gone, and it might even be sooner. If you're in immigration detention, it's an open, it's open-ended. You don't know, and the court says, this, our highest court says that's okay. Um, so, it, and, and if you're there indefinitely and you can't pursue an education there, that's really it's really limiting to 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 any human. So there's a lot of dignity that's that's stripped um, for non-citizens in, in detention. What other questions do we have? Thank you, Kula. Hello. Hi. Um, I learned so much. We're just going to start right there. Oh, I thought I so knew some of this, minutes. and I learned so much. I went over. Yeah. <laughs> if I want to know if I'm correct about something, before they did the zero paroles, they were paroling people. And like 75, 95, a huge percentage of those people cooperated yes. and came in. Those people, was it costing us anything besides the court proceeding? No. Because now it's costing... Now it's costing even more. Right. It's so it wasn't costing anything for people who were very likely going to show up. Exactly. So it begs the question... Why, right? Yeah, right. Well, I can tell you that when you walk into the lobby of Core Civic, they have their stock prices posted in okay. the lobby. All so right. it's a numbers game. It's, it, there's really no denying it. Right. Uh, why would you implement a policy 
where you won't let people get out on bond so that you can, right. and, then there, and then there's all this crying about all the numbers at the border, but we're gonna keep them all detained right. and build more facilities because it's expensive and somebody has to pay for it and somebody's going to get paid for it. Yeah. Is there any evidence that any of this nonsense, and I'm gonna label it nonsense, is deterring anybody? There's no evidence that it's deterring anybody. That's what and I the, thought. And the other issue is, I'm like, um, well, the other, the other facts that remain are there are alternatives to detention. Besides, outside of parole, there are, um, or in conjunction with, with parole and bond, ankle monitors, um, other types of GPS monitoring. They, they're, they're even making advances in that where you can take a picture of yourself and, and they will... Um, you know, you can turn on the location on your phone. There's so much technology that can be used for this now. Um, and, and that costs a fraction of what it costs to detain a person on a daily basis. Literally like, like $6 a day or $16 a day. Um, so those could be used much on a, on a much broader scale, and, and they're just not. Hi. Hi. Uh, I'm just wondering, is there any length inside for, as you said, they don't know how long they're going to be there, about how long they're going to keep these people there. It's, um, it's a good question. Right now, I mean, years? Somebody has a, if somebody has a final order, um, I can tell you that people that are in removal proceedings that are detained, the approximate amount of time that they're there, you know, we take these, we take these cases because they move a little bit more quickly. Um, so if we take a case in September, they're usually out by Christmas. If, and that's, now take it, keep in mind, that's somebody who we offered representation to and we're doing all the, we're doing all the representation from A to Z. Um, now somebody who doesn't have a lawyer, they might go through several continuances because they don't have counsel to try to find counsel. Um, but somebody who has full representation from September to December, they can be in and out with relief or a removal order. Now, if they got a removal order, they may appeal it. They have 30 days from the day of the immigration judge's decision to appeal it to the Board of Immigration Appeals, okay? And then um, the Board of Immigration Appeals, that appeal might take a while. Now, here's something that I didn't mention. It's relevant to your question. Um, say my client gets a grant of asylum today. The government is not happy about it. The judge, the first thing the judge says after he gives his decision is to the government, do you reserve or waive appeal? He might say, your honor, we reserve. What happens? My client stays detained even though he just won his case. Okay? So he stays detained and the government has 30 days to file the notice of appeal. I've had it happen on more than one occasion since I've come here. On the 29th day, the government calls me up and says, we decided we're not going to file the notice. Well, you just wasted 29 of my client's nights and 29 nights worth of taxpayers' money for how, who knows how many other people during those 29 days. So that's, that's, that's another problem. And once you appeal to the BIA, say my client lost and he appeals, he's going to wait months before he gets a decision before the BIA. He's going to remain detained that entire time. Um, because the BIA oversees the appeals for all, all the immigration courts in the United States, one court. Would you also then give a worst case scenario? What about this person who 
doesn't you the Benin doesn't speak crazy. the language. Yeah. How long could he end? How long could? Oh, he was detained for almost two years. He was detained for almost two years. Um, and, and I was looking at the track study today. There is, as of now, there's a, a, like a handful of people who've been detained since 2007. And since I when? 2007. 2007 is 2019 right now. Um, yeah, I had I had somebody call me up when I was in California still, and there was a was like the Boston Globe, and they were like, "Oh, you, you know, do you know about these detainees that have been detained for 10 years in in Alabama?" I'm like, "What?" Um, yeah. So, any other questions? Hi. Hi, I'm Nicole. Nice Hi, Nicole. to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Um, my question is sort of dovetailing off of the questions related to access. Yes. I am curious. Um, I'm a linguistics professor at YSU, cool. so I am curious about um, linguistic access. What kinds of things are happening related to um, interpretation, access to, you know, bilingual, multilingual um, staff in the facilities, judges, etc. And then the other question, sort of related to that, because I know that folks that are in um, criminal detention have access, if they have English as an additional language, they have access maybe to English as an additional language courses, right? And so what kinds of access do our non-criminal detainees have? Right, and that's that. The last question is related to Akula's first question, and they don't have that same thing. They're not taking English classes within the detention center. In some of the bigger facilities, I think the only thing that's offered are like um, AA classes and like faith-related courses, um, but not like getting a GED or a high school diploma or um, learning another language. And Nicole, your question about language access and interpretation is such an important one. And, and I can tell you that, so with my clinic, we can only take as many cases as I have students and as many as I can supervise in a semester. And that usually turns out to be four to six per semester. The biggest problem, the biggest obstacle we face is getting interpreters to help the students because we don't have, you know, our students don't speak all the languages. Um, some of them do speak other languages, amazing. But, like, for example, we had a difficult time pairing, you know, getting enough people to go out to Youngstown with us to do the client interviews, to, you know, confirm the information, the declarations, prep for the final hearings. Um, so that's been really hard. And I do outreach to the entire University of Akron. We've had wonderful faculty come also and, and volunteer their time to, to do translation interpretation. The immigration court contracts with, or the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which is part of the Department of Justice, um, contracts with in a company called SOCI, SOCI Incorporated. They um, provide all the interpretation in court. But the prep is on the respondent. Uh, we, the person in proceedings is called the respondent. They're responding to the charges by ICE. So that's why they're called the respondent. Um, that part is really difficult. And for somebody who doesn't have counsel, doesn't have somebody that's looking for somebody to translate everything for them, it's very hard. I had court today, it was supposed to be the final merits hearing, and of course, we got like an 11th hour email submission from our client's family with like 15 different documents in Spanish. And we're like, okay. Um, the judge left the record open, but we gotta find somebody in three days to translate everything and, and turn it in. 
Um, so that's really hard. When I first started, I, wanna, I do want to make this point on, on, on language access and detention. When I first found out that they were going to start uh, processing non-citizens at Youngstown, I called up Detroit and I said, um, I hear you're going to run your first master calendar hearings. Those are preliminary hearings in immigration court in, you know, coming up in a couple of weeks. I want to observe them. Well, that wasn't a very popular request, um, but ultimately I was able to do it. And so it was really just makeshift. They were, that day, they were running computers in on, on carts and setting stuff up on boxes. Um, the, the hearings were taking place in a 15 by nine room with white walls and a little computer screen like this. And the camera wasn't even pointed at the judge. And there was a line the light from, from that entry to the, to the kitchen all the way to the front door of guys from Central America just standing there in their prison jumpsuits waiting to go in for their master calendar hearing in Youngstown, Ohio, in the prison before a judge who was sitting in Kansas City. Okay? <laughs> None of them had an attorney save a few. And the, if they had an attorney, they were calling in via telephone from another state. Okay, the, the, and you, you were just hearing them on a, you know, through the speaker because they were calling the judge in Kansas City. So say, you know, hearings happen at eight and one o'clock, but we had to know what time it was in Kansas City <laughs> to know what time the, the hearings were going to be because we had to adjust. Um, they didn't even have a, a, a judge in Cleveland, Ohio, looking over the, you know, over, overseeing the hearings until just about a year ago. Um, so that was, you know, that was difficult and an adjustment. Um, and so what would happen in those hearings, going back to your question, Nicole, is they, the, the judge would say, do you want to have, do you have a lawyer? No, I don't have a lawyer. And, and he's going through a phone interpreter. So you have a phone interpreter, a phone lawyer, and the judge in another state, and you're sitting in a room looking at a screen. And this is, they've said that this is a perfectly acceptable practice, televideo hearings, okay? Um, so the judge says, all right, the officer is going to give you an asylum application. All applications for any benefit in immigration court or with USCIS are in English only, all right? And they are very technical applications. The asylum application is 11 pages long, 11 pages long plus supplement, all right? And you've got to figure out what it says. Um, and you've got to meet the deadline. And like I said, the... the, the the docket in, when you're detained is much faster than if you're not detained. Actually, I only said this to the young lady who interviewed me for the news. If I walk in to a, client, to, to a hearing for, with my detained client today and we need to file an asylum application, he might give me a date two weeks from now. All right? Be back. You know, two weeks from now, we'll file our application. And then I file my application in two weeks and they'll say, okay, we have a merits date in three weeks come back and we'll finish the hearing up then. That's pretty fast, right? I might even say, Your Honor, we need a little bit more time working with students here, okay? Um, but if I have the same client who's not detained, say he got out on bond, all right? And then we're in court, we, we come with an asylum application today, the judge is gonna tell me, all right, I have my next open availability, March 17th, 2023. See you then, all right? There is a backlog of immigration cases of almost 850,000. 
right? 30% of those are asylum cases, right? Um, now, that's kind of a, a big number to swallow, um, but, but I, it's important that I illustrate the difference between those two tracks, detained and non-detained. Um, and that's not an exaggeration, and that's in Ohio. If we were in Texas or California, it would not be an exaggeration to get a date in 2024, 2025. There are just so many cases being backlogged right now. Um, so, I hope I answered your question. <laughs> okay, good. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to know if, out of the four cities that are here in Ohio that have ICE detention centers, do these cities benefit financially from these centers being here? And if so, like, where does that money go citywide? Good question. I would say, so this, this I'm going to bring it back a little bit and say... There are hundreds of ICE detention facilities, but there are different kinds of ICE detention facilities, okay? They're the tiny little middle-of-nowhere processing places where maybe just a handful of people can be held, all right, when you, like, along the border. They might have capacity for just a handful of people. And then you've got the big 1,000-person detention facilities operated by, I, by, by GEO, uh, CoreCivic, used to be CCA, MCC, all right, the private prisons, all right? You have the ICE-owned processing centers, okay, which are has the smallest percentage. All right, they rely heavily on the big pro- for-profit prisons, like the one here. They rely heavily on that. Um, and then there are IGSAs, intergovernmental service agreements. These are your county jails: Giaga, Butler, Seneca. So really, the money. There's, of course, the county has a contract with ICE, but it's certainly not nearly as lucrative as the ones that GEO and CCA and CoreCivic are profiting from. Because naturally, the for-profit prisons have a larger capacity, they have more bed space, so they're gonna make more money per day. They're, gonna, they're able to, to draft larger contracts um, with the government. Um, but where does the money go? <laughs> um, well, a lot of it is going to go to the corporation itself, all right? And I think in some way, yeah, it does boost the economy of that community by employing that number of people. It's no small number of people that's employed by Core Civic in Youngstown. I mean, if you, you go there during the shift change, you'll see how many people are there. Um, but it's a great responsibility to be a correctional officer. You have to, I think the first thing people think of is like, oh, you have to put up with a lot of stuff. Well, yeah, maybe if you're working with like a criminal population. But imagine, imagine being somebody who approaches the border and the first thing you are, the first thing that happens to you is you're detained, right? When I give the Know Your Rights presentations, I ask them out of just sheer curiosity now, Raise your hand if you knew you were going to be detained when you got here. They were like, no. Um, unless they were removed before. Okay, If they were removed before, they would know. <coughs> um, so you have this population of people that's never been incarcerated. They don't know what a prison looks like. They've never had committed a crime. It's terrifying to them. They're terrified. 
They're so terrified that a good percentage of them gives up and says, oh my God, no, I got to get out of here. I don't care. I want to talk to the officer and sign my removal right now. Part of what we do is, is get people to stay and, and say, hey, just hang in there. Your hearing is coming up. You, you are in a, you know, you've got a good judge, um, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, and that's, that's not untrue. That's another thing that we didn't talk about is the vast disparity in grant rates across the nation. Um, you might in New York have a 60% chance of getting, of winning your asylum case if it, if it has merit. If you go to, you go to Stewart, the Stewart facility in Georgia, oh, forget it. It's like a, it's like a death sentence. You, you're just waiting to get out of there. Um, there's no way you're going to get granted, and you know it. And so, you know, then there's this question of, like, you, you can't forum shop. The other, thing that we, the other thing we didn't talk about is how do you get to, how do you get to Youngstown versus Otay Mesa versus Adelanto? These are names of big facilities. How do you get there? It's a numbers game. I often visualize like a, like a, like a big ice matrix wall, you know, and like all the numbers are falling down and they have all the facilities and they're like, oh, we have 36 beds here and 72 beds here, you know, all these little green dots. And, and they just say, okay, ship them there. We took, a, we took a cancellation of removal case for a single father of four U.S. citizen children ages seven months to 10 years old, single father of these four U.S. citizen children. He showed up at the Youngstown facility from Marion, Virginia. I said, well, how did you get here from Marion, Virginia? They just shipped a bunch of people from Marion, Virginia to Youngstown, Ohio. You cannot find the rhyme or reason. Um, Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Want to say your final word? Okay. Thank you so much, everybody. This is great. (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, sure. Okay. There were some questions that couldn't be answered because of time. Elizabeth will be available afterwards for questions. I want to take a moment and thank everybody for coming out tonight to uh, another Views and Brews here at Susie's Dogs and Draft. Uh, Once again, we want to thank Raymond John Ween Foundation, the Youngstown Foundation, Bank America, and the Nordson Foundation for sponsoring City Club events, including this one. Additional support comes from YSU and the Arnett Family Fund, a component fund of the Community Foundation of the Moaning Valley. Once again, we thank Susie's for hosting us tonight and our community partners, YSU Working Class Studies and WYSU. That brings tonight's forum to an end. Thank you, everyone.